Chapter 19 of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Do you wish so hot can be? That was what the guide asked when we were looking up at the bronze horses on the Arch of Peace. It meant, Do you wish to go up there? I give it as a specimen of guide English. These are the people that make life a burden to the tourist. Their tongues are never still. They talk forever and ever, and that is the kind of billingsgate they use. Inspiration itself could hardly comprehend them. If they would only show you a masterpiece of art, or a venerable tomb, or a prison house, or a battlefield, hallowed by touching memories or historical reminiscences or grand traditions and then step aside and hold still for ten minutes and let you think it would not be so bad but they interrupt every dream every pleasant train of thought and their tiresome cackling sometimes when i've been standing before some cherished old idol of mine that i remembered years and years ago in pictures in the geography at school, I have thought I would give a whole world if the human parrot at my side would suddenly perish where he stood and leave me to gaze and ponder and worship. No, we do not wish so hot can be. We wish to go to La Scala, the largest theater in the world, I think they call it. We did so. It was a large place. Seven separate and distinct masses of humanity. Six great circles and a monster parquet. We wished to go to the Ambrosian Library, and we did that also. We saw a manuscript of Virgil, with annotations in the handwriting of Petrarch, the gentleman who loved another man's Laura, and lavished upon her all through life a love which was a clear waste of the raw material it was sound sentiment but bad judgment it brought both parties fame and created a fountain of commiseration for them in sentimental breasts that is running yet but who says a word in behalf of poor mr laura i do not know his other name who glorifies him? Who bedews him with tears? Who writes poetry about him? Nobody. How do you suppose he liked the state of things that has given the world so much pleasure? How did he enjoy having another man following his wife everywhere and making her name a familiar word in every garlic exterminating mouth in Italy with his sonnets to her preempted eyebrows? They got fame and sympathy. He got neither. This is a peculiarly felicitous instance of what is called poetical justice. It is all very fine, but does not chime with my notions of right. It is too one-sided, too ungenerous. Let the world go on fretting about Laura and Petrarch, if you will. But as for me... My tears and my lamentations shall be lavished upon the unsung defendant. 
We saw also an autographed letter of Lucrezia Borgia, the lady for whom I have always entertained the highest respect, on account of her rare histrionic capabilities, her opulence and solid gold goblets made of gilded wood, her high distinction as an operatic screamer, and the facility with which she could order a sextuple funeral and get the corpses ready for it. We saw one single coarse yellow hair from Lucretia's head. Likewise, it awoke emotions, but we still live. In this same library, we saw some drawings by Michelangelo. These Italians call him Michelangelo. And Leonardo da Vinci. They spell it Vinci and pronounce it Vinci. Foreigners always spell better than they pronounce. We reserve our opinion of these sketches. In another building, they showed us a fresco representing some lions and other beasts drawing chariots, and they seemed to project so far from the wall that we took them to be sculptures. The artist had shrewdly heightened the delusion by painting dust on the creatures' backs as if it had fallen there naturally and properly. Smart fellow, if it be smart to deceive strangers. Elsewhere we saw a huge Roman amphitheater, with its stone seat still in good preservation. Modernized, it is now the scene of more peaceful recreations than the exhibition of a party of wild beasts with Christians for dinner. Part of the time, the Melanese use it for a racetrack, and at other seasons they flood it with water and have spirited yachting regattas there. The guide told us these things, and he would hardly try so hazardous an experiment as the telling of a falsehood, when it is all he can do to speak the truth in English without getting the lockjaw. In another place, we were shown a sort of summer arbor with a fence before it. We said that was nothing. We looked again and saw through the arbor an endless stretch of garden and shrubbery and grassy lawn. We were perfectly willing to go in there and rest, but it could not be done. It was only another delusion, a painting by some ingenious artist with little charity in his heart for tired folk. The deception was perfect. No one could have imagined the park was not real. We even thought we smelled the flowers at first. We got a carriage at twilight and drove in the shaded avenues with the other nobility, and after dinner we took wine and ices in a fine garden with a great public. The music was excellent. The flowers and shrubbery were pleasant to the eye. The scene was vivacious, everybody was genteel and well-behaved, and the ladies were slightly mustached and handsomely dressed, but very homely. We adjourned to a cafe and played billiards an hour, and I made six or seven points by the doctor pocketing his ball, and he made as many by my pocketing my ball. We came near making a carom sometimes, but not the one we were trying to make. 
The table was of the usual European style, cushions dead and twice as high as the balls, the cues in bad repair. The natives play only a sort of pool on them. We have never seen anybody playing the French three-ball game yet, and I doubt if there is any such game known in France, or that there lives any man mad enough to try to play it on one of these European tables. We had to stop playing finally because Dan got to sleeping fifteen minutes between the counts and paying no attention to his marking. Afterward, we walked up and down one of the most popular streets for some time, enjoying other people's comfort and wishing we could export some of it to our restless, driving, vitality-consuming marts at home. Just in this one matter lies the main charm of life in Europe, comfort. In America we hurry, which is well, but when the day's work is done, we go on thinking of losses and gains, we plan for the morrow, we even carry our business cares to bed with us, and toss and worry over them when we ought to be restoring our racked bodies and brains with sleep. We burn up our energies with these excitements and either die early or drop into a lean and mean old age at a time of life which they call a man's prime in Europe. When an acre of ground is produced long and well, we let it lie fallow and rest for a season. We take no man clear across the continent in the same coach he started in. The coach is stabled somewhere on the plains and its heated machinery allowed to cool for a few days. When a razor has seen long service and refuses to hold an edge, the barber lays it away for a few weeks, and the edge comes back of its own accord. We bestow thoughtful care upon inanimate objects, but none upon ourselves. What a robust people, what a nation of thinkers we might be, if we would only lay ourselves on the shelf occasionally and renew our edges. I do envy these Europeans the comfort they take. When the work of the day is done, they forget it. Some of them go with wife and child to a beer hall, and sit quietly and gently drinking a mug or two of ale and listening to music. Others walk the streets, others drive in the avenues. Others assemble in the great ornamental squares in the early evening to enjoy the sight and fragrance of flowers and hear the military bands play. No European city being without its fine military music at eventide. And yet others of the populace sit in the open air in front of the refreshment houses and eat ices and drink mild beverages that could not harm a child. They go to bed moderately early and sleep well. They are always quiet, always orderly, always cheerful, comfortable, and appreciative of life and its manifold blessings. One never sees a drunken man among them. The change has come over our little party is surprising. Day by day we lose some of our restlessness and absorb some of the spirit of quietude and ease that is in the tranquil atmosphere about us and in the demeanor of the people. 
we grow wise apace. We begin to comprehend what life is for. We have had a bath in Milan, a public bathhouse. We were going to put all three of us in one bathtub, but we objected. Each of us had a Italian farm on his back. We could have felt affluent if we'd been officially surveyed and fenced in. We chose to have three bathtubs and large ones, tubs suited to the dignity of aristocrats who had real estate and brought it with them. After we were stripped and had taken the first chilly dash, we discovered that haunting atrocity that has embittered our lives in so many cities and villages of Italy and France. There was no soap. I called. A woman answered, and I barely had time to throw myself against the door. She would have been in in another second. I said, Beware, woman. Go away from here. Go away now, or it will be the worse for you. I am an unprotected male, but I will preserve my honor at the peril of my life. These words must have frightened her, for she scurried away very fast. Dan's voice rose on the air. Oh, bring some soap, why don't you? The reply was Italian. Dan resumed. Soap, you know, soap. That is what I want, soap. S-O-A-P, soap. S-O-P-E, soap. S-O-U-P, soap. Hurry up. I don't know how you Irish spell it, but I want it. Spell it to suit yourself, but fetch it. I'm freezing. I heard the doctor say impressively, Dan, how often have we told you that these foreigners cannot understand English? Why will you not depend upon us? Why will you not tell us what you want? and let us ask for it in the language of the country. It would save us a great deal of the humiliation your reprehensible ignorance causes us. I will address this person in his mother tongue. Here, Cospetto, Corpo di Bacco, Sacramento, Salferino, Soap, you son of a gun. Dan, if you would let us talk for you, you would never expose your ignorant vulgarity. Even this fluent discharge of Italian did not bring soap at once, but there was good reason for it. There was not such an article about the establishment. It is my belief that there never had been. They had to send far uptown and to several different places before they finally got it, so they said. We had to wait twenty or thirty minutes. The same thing had occurred the evening before at the hotel. I think I have divined the reason for this state of things at last. The English know how to travel comfortably, and they carry soap with them. Other foreigners do not use the article. At every hotel we stop at, we always have to send out for soap at the last moment, when we are grooming ourselves for dinner, and they put it in the billing along with the candles and other nonsense. In Marseilles they make half the fancy toilet soap we consume in America. 
but the Marseillais only have a vague theoretical idea of its use, which they have obtained from books of travel, just as they have acquired an uncertain notion of clean shirts and the peculiarities of the gorilla and other curious matters. This reminds me of poor Blucher's note to the landlord in Paris. Paris, Le Seven Julep, Monsieur Le Landlord. Sir, porquet, don't you matisse some savon in your bedchambers? Est ce que vous pensez, I will steal it. La nuit passée, you charge me pour deux chandelles when I only had one. Her vous avez charged me avec glace when I had done it all. Tout le jour, you are coming some fresh game or other on me. Mas vous ne pouvez pas play this Savon dodge on me. Twice. Savon is a necessary de la vie to anybody but a Frenchman. Et je l'arle, or de set hotel, or make trouble. You hear me? Allons. Blucher. I remonstrated against the sending of this note, because it was so mixed up that the landlord would never be able to make head or tail of it, but Blucher said he guessed the old man could read the French of it and average the rest. Blucher's French is bad enough, but it is not much worse than the English one finds in advertisements all over Italy every day. For instance, observe the printed card of the hotel we shall probably stop at on the shores of Lake Como. Notish. This hotel, which the best it is in Italy, and most superb, is handsome locate on the best situation of the lake, with the most splendid view near the Vias Melzi, to the King of Belgium and Serbiloni. This hotel have recently enlarged to offer all commodities on moderate price at the stranger's gentleman who wishes spend the seasons on the lake calm. How's that for a specimen? In the hotel is a handsome little chapel where an English clergyman is employed to preach to such of the guests of the house as hail from England and America and this fact is also set forth in barbarous English in the same advertisement. Wouldn't you have supposed that the adventurous linguist who framed the card would have known enough to submit it to that clergyman before he sent it to the printer? Here in Milan, in an ancient tumble-down ruin of a church, is the mournful wreck of the most celebrated painting in the world. THE LAST SUPPER by Leonardo da Vinci. We are not infallible judges of pictures, but of course we went there to see this wonderful painting, once so beautiful, always so worshipped by masters in art, and forever to be famous in song and story. And the first thing that occurred was the infliction on us of a placard fairly reeking with wretched English. Take a morsel of it. 
Bartholomew, that is the first figure on the left hand side of, at the spectator, uncertain and doubtful about what he thinks to have heard and upon which he wants to be assured by himself at Christ and by no others. Good, isn't it? And then Peter is described as argumenting in a threatening and angrily condition at Judas Iscariot. This paragraph recalls a picture. The Last Supper is painted on the dilapidated wall of what was a little chapel attached to the main church in ancient times, I suppose. It is battered and scarred in every direction, and stained and discolored by time, and Napoleon's horses kicked the legs off most of the disciples when they, the horses, not the disciples, were stabled there more than half a century ago. I recognized the old picture in a moment, the Savior with bowed head seated at the center of a long, rough table with scattering fruits and dishes upon it, and six disciples on either side in their long robes talking to each other. The picture, from which all engravings and all copies have been made for three centuries, Perhaps no living man has ever attempted to paint the Lord's Supper differently. The world seems to have become settled in the belief long ago that it is not possible for human genius to outdo this creation of da Vinci's. I suppose painters will go on copying it as long as any of the original is left visible to the eye. There were a dozen easels in the room, and as many artists transferring the great picture to their canvases. Fifty proofs of steel engravings and lithographs were scattered around, too, and as usual I could not help noticing how superior the copies were to the original, that is, to my inexperienced eye. Wherever you find a Raphael, a Rubens, a Michelangelo, a Carassi, or a da Vinci, and we see them every day, you find artists copying them, and the copies are always the handsomest. Maybe the originals were handsome when they were new, but they are not now. This picture is about 30 feet long and 10 or 12 high, I should think, and the figures are at least life-size. It is one of the largest paintings in Europe. The colors are dimmed with age, the continents are scaled and marred, and nearly all expression has gone from them. The hair is a dead blur upon the wall, and there is no life in the eyes, only the attitudes are certain. People come here from all parts of the world and glorify this masterpiece. They stand entranced before it with bated breath and parted lips, and when they speak it is only in the catchy ejaculations of rapture. Oh, wonderful! Such expression, such grace of attitude, such dignity, such faultless drawing, such matchless coloring, such feeling. What delicacy of touch, what sublimity of conception! A vision, a vision. I only envy these people. I envy them 
their honest admiration if it be honest their delight if they feel delight i harbor no animosity towards any of them but at the same time the thought will intrude itself upon me how can they see what is not visible what would you think of a man who looked at some decayed blind toothless pockmarked cleopatra and said what matchless beauty what soul what expression what would you think of a man who gazed upon a dingy foggy sunset and said what sublimity what feeling what richness of coloring what would you think of a man who stared in ecstasy upon a desert of stumps and said oh my soul my beating heart what a noble forest is here you would think that those men had an astonishing talent for seeing things that had already passed away it was what i thought when i stood before the last supper and heard men apostrophizing wonders and beauties and perfections which had faded out of the picture and gone a hundred years before they were born we can imagine the beauty that once was an aged face we can imagine the forest if we see the stumps but we cannot absolutely see these things when they are not there i am willing to believe that the eye of the practiced artist can rest upon the last supper and renew a luster where only a hint of it is left and supply a tint that has faded away restore an expression that is gone patch and color and add to the dull canvas until at last its figure shall stand before him aglow with life the feeling the freshness yea with all the noble beauty that was theirs when they first came from the hand of the master but i cannot work this miracle can those other uninspired visitors do it or do they only happily imagine they do after reading so much about it i am satisfied that the last supper was a very miracle of art once but it was three hundred years ago it vexes me to hear people talk so glibly of feeling expression tone and those other easily acquired and inexpensive technicalities of art that make such a fine show in conversations about pictures there is not one man in seventy-five hundred that can tell what a pictured face is intended to express there is not one man in five hundred that can go into a courtroom and be sure he will not mistake some harmless innocent of a juryman for the black-hearted assassin on trial yet such folk talk of character and presume to interpret expression in pictures there's an old story that matthews the actor was once lauding the ability of the human face to express the passions and emotions hidden in the breast he said the countenance could disclose what was passing in the heart plainer than the tongue could now he said observe my face what does it express despair bah it expresses peaceful resignation what does this express rage stuff it means terror this imbecility fool it is smothered ferocity now take this joy 
Oh, perdition! Any ass can see it means insanity. Expression. People coolly pretend to read it, who would think themselves presumptuous if they pretended to interpret the hieroglyphics on the obliques of Luxor. Yet they are fully as competent to do the one thing as the other. I have heard two very intelligent critics speak of Morello's immaculate conception, now in the museum at Seville, within the past few days. One said, Oh, the Virgin's face is full of the ecstasy of a joy that is complete, that leaves nothing more to be desired on earth. The other said, Oh, that wonderful face is so humble, so pleading. It says as plainly as words could say it, I fear, I tremble, I am unworthy, but thy will be done. Sustain thou thy servant. The reader can see the picture in any drawing room. It can be easily recognized. The virgin, the only young and really beautiful virgin that was ever painted in one of the old masters, some of us think, stands in the crescent of the new moon with a multitude of cherubs hovering about her and more coming her hands are crossed upon her breast and upon her uplifted countenance falls a glory out of the heavens the reader may amuse himself if he chooses in trying to determine which of these gentlemen read the virgin's expression aright or if either of them did it right Anyone who is acquainted with the old masters will comprehend how much the Last Supper is damaged when I say that the spectator cannot really tell now whether the disciples are Hebrews or Italians. These ancient painters never succeeded in denationalizing themselves. The Italian artists painted Italian virgins. The Dutch painted Dutch virgins. The virgins of the French painters were French women. None of them ever put into the face of the Madonna that an indescribable something which proclaims the Jewess. Whether you find her in New York, in Constantinople, in Paris, Jerusalem, or in the Empire of Morocco, I saw in the Sandwich Island once a picture copied by a talented German artist from an engraving of one of the American illustrated papers. It was an allegory representing Mr. Davis in the act of signing a secession act or some such document. Over him hovered the ghost of Washington in a warning attitude, and in the background a troop of shadowy soldiers in continental uniform were limping with shoeless, bandaged feet through a driving snowstorm. Valley Forge was suggested, of course. The copy seemed accurate, and yet there was a discrepancy somewhere. After long examination, I discovered what it was. The shadowy soldiers were all Germans. Jeff Davis was a German. Even the hovering ghost was a German ghost. The artist had unconsciously worked his nationality into the picture. To tell the truth, I'm getting a little perplexed about john the baptist and his portraits in france i finally grew reconciled to him as a frenchman here he is unquestionably an italian what next can it be possible that the painters make john the baptist a spaniard in madrid 
and an Irishman in Dublin? We took an open barouche and drove two miles out of Milan to seize the echo, as the guide expressed it. The road was smooth, it was bordered by trees, fields, and grassy meadows, and the soft air was filled with the odor of flowers. Troops of picturesque peasant girls coming from work hooted at us, shouted at us, made all manner of game of us, and entirely delighted me. My long-cherished judgment was confirmed. I always did think those frowsy, romantic, unwashed peasant girls I had read so much about in poetry were a glaring fraud. We enjoyed our jaunt. It was an exhilarating relief from tiresome sightseeing. We distressed ourselves very little about the astonishing echo the guide talked so much about. We were growing accustomed to econiums on wonder that too often proved no wonders at all. And so we were most happily disappointed to find in the sequel that the guide had even failed to rise to the magnitude of his subject. We arrived at a tumble-down old rookery called the Plazo Simonetti, a massive hewn stone affair occupied by a family of ragged Italians. A good-looking young girl conducted us to a window on the second floor, which looked out on a court, walled on three sides by tall buildings. She put her head out the window and shouted. The echo answered more times than we could count. She took a speaking trumpet, and through it she shouted sharp and quick a single, Ha! And the echo answered, Ha! 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 Finally, it went off into a rollicking convulsion of the jolliest laughter that could be imagined. It was so joyful, so long-continued, so perfectly cordial and hearty, that everybody was forced to join in. There was no resisting it. Then the girl took a gun and fired it. We stood ready to count the astonishing clatter of reverberations. We could not say one, two, three fast enough but we could dot our notebooks with our pencil points almost rapidly enough to take down a sort of shorthand report of the result. My page revealed the following account. I could not keep up, but I did as well as I could. I set down fifty-two distinct repetitions, and then the echo got the advantage of me. The doctor set down sixty-four, and thenceforth the echo moved too fast for him also. After the separate concussions could no longer be noted, the reverberations dwindled to a wild, long-sustained clatter of sounds, such as a watchman's rattle produces. It is likely that this is the most remarkable echo in the world. The doctor, in jest, offered to kiss the young girl and was taken a little back when she said she might for a franc. The commonest gallantry compelled him to stand by his offer, and so he paid the franc and took the kiss. She was a philosopher. She said a franc was a good thing to have, and she did not care for anything but for one paltry kiss, because she had a million left. Then our comrade, always a shrewd businessman, 
offered to take the whole cargo at thirty days, but that little financial scheme was a failure. End of chapter nineteen recording by B. Scott Holmes, bscottholmes.com.